You're listening to Plucking Up. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. I'm the founder of a socially conscious fashion brand called Seiko Designs. At Seiko, we sell beautiful apparel and footwear and leather goods. And beyond being very stylish, if I do say so myself, we are creating opportunity for female scholars across the globe to attend university and become leaders in their community and our world. So if you are looking to make an impact and elevate your wardrobe, check out Seiko. Maybe even consider hosting a Seiko event. You can do that online or in person, and you can earn a lot of free Seiko. But over the last 10 years of building this business, right, I have had many a pluck ups, y'all. That is my loving language for mistakes wrong turns, more rejections, frankly, than I can count. And I have become a little bit obsessed with sharing more of the behind the scenes stories of the shiny highlight reels we so often hear about. So that's what we are doing here on the Plucking Up podcast. I get to interview some of the world's most successful and celebrated entrepreneurs, authors, artists, and leaders, not just about their highlights, but about their pluck-ups and how they moved on and up to keep building beautiful lives of purpose, passion, and impact. We have had the honor of having quite a few New York Times bestselling authors on the show, like Liz Gilbert and Matthew McConaughey. And now we are bringing you another incredible author, thinker, human. And I just love how different, even with these people that are in the same industries and have um, similar products that they're creating out in the world, right? These authors who are writing books, how different and varied the path has been. Today's guest is Jedediah Jenkins. Jed started out his illustrious career in film school, where he lasted a whopping semester before he dropped out, and then went to law school, and then worked in some nonprofits, and now he is the author of To Shake the Sleeping Self, and the recently released book Like Streams to the Ocean. Y'all, I just loved this chat with Jed. I wish that it had taken place around a campfire because it really did feel like just the best chat with a kindred spirit and an old friend. But I am very happy for you that we recorded the conversation. We covered a lot in this episode and honestly, our entire conversation was way too long to air. So I'm probably just going to need to have Jed back on the show again. But I think you're going to be really encouraged and inspired by this beautiful life that Jed has built despite a lot of twists and turns along the way. We talk about being the children of divorce, about what happens when you have this big dream and then you go out and then you fail. We talk about wrestling through identity and work and faith and community. Jed is really thoughtful and curious and honest and tender and hopeful and funny. And I think you're going to want to be his friend (laughs) and buy his books when we are done here. All right. Without further ado, the one and only Jedediah Jenkins. Jed, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here with us today. (laughs) It's my pleasure. I love talking to fun people. 
So our folks have heard your, you know, kind of like highlight reel bio, New York Times bestselling author, all the fancy stuff. We'd like to start off for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you. Give us like a little bit of a background in the Jedediah Jenkins story of like, where do you come from? Who and what made you who you are today? (sighs) I love talking about myself. This is thrilling. So (laughs) I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee where I still live about half the time or a substantial amount of time. And I loved growing up there. I grew up on Mm. a farm south of Nashville, playing in the creek, just a little boy on the farm, like catching turtles, snakes, all the things. And my parents got divorced when I was probably four or five Mm. at a time that like, I don't have a memory of the divorce I don't really have a memory of them together. Hmm. Um, So in that sense, I would say divorce wasn't hard on me because I never felt the tear. But as I grew up and I started like in my teenage years to hear how brutal it was on them, Hmm. it's just an interesting thing to look back and kind of psychoanalyze the building blocks of my own personality as an adult of how I was influenced by that environment. How did um, you hear? Did they tell you? Is that who you were hearing it from? Yeah. So like, I mean, I knew they were divorced, but I just thought being divorced was normal and that you got two Christmases. I was like, this is great. Like, hello. Um, But then like, and my parents did a very good job of not vilifying each other. But Mm. as I approached teenage years, young adulthood, they would sometimes confide in me things. They, I presented as very adult, very young because I read lots of books and sounded smarter than I was. And so they would sometimes say things that were shocking to me just because they had done such a good job of insulating me from that adult reality as a kid, which is very common for parents to do. And they did such a good job of not, there's a term in therapy called emotional incest. And it's where oftentimes like a mother will treat her son as if he's a partner because they're so close. And she like, puts him in a position that a mother-son relationship in terms of advice giving, in terms Mm. of sharing grief when it's just a child who has no job having that burden on their development. Yeah. And so all that to say, my parents did a very good job of not doing that. So my childhood seemed very idyllic. Um, I'm going to stop you there and just ask you more questions about this. So for our listeners who don't know, and I'm, I'll show my cards and say, I do know, because I know I've read your book. I know the things. <laughs> your parents had this like pretty epic relationship yeah. and story. So they like, didn't they trek across the United States of America and they got like all, and I don't know if they were writers, but they were these like adventurer, like partners. Like I imagine that if you were their contemporary when they were married, you probably looked at their marriage of like, oh, this like wild passionate like adventuring partnership of a couple that then obviously like they didn't end up staying together and I'm curious about how like when you learned more about their pre-divorce partnership and marriage and then how hard divorce was like what was that experience like because I'm also a child of divorce but I got to a certain age at or you know young adulthood where I started asking questions about like was it ever good? Yeah. Like, did you ever really, like, was there ever really a partnership? And feel like I kind of more came up with the, like, I mean, obviously they fell in love, but in some ways I almost feel like it would be harder to see something that felt like at one point it was like, 
everything. But maybe I'm reading into your parents' pre-divorce well, no, marriage. That, that's it's so interesting. The power of a committed, intimate relationship is one thing, and then when that relationship is also a brand. And I think about this. I grew up in the church, and I saw like the pastor and his wife mm. are like on stage every day in their marriage, and then like you find out the pastor has been cheating, and it like ripples through the whole church like this icon of marriage is been a lie and so yeah. to some degree my parents were a famous couple they wrote very successful books in the early 80s and late 70s that sold millions and millions of copies like bazillions more than i'll ever sell and they were famous they were on the cover of National Geographic. They were interviewed wow. all the time. Wow. Okay. I knew that they were a deal, but I don't know if I knew that they were that big of a deal. And like like you intuited, part of the draw was their love story of falling in love, walking across America. And then when that marriage fell apart, kind of at the height of their fame, Whoa. it seemed to, and this was before I had any consciousness, taint their brand and their experience. And so mm. by the time I was a thinking person in the early 90s or mid 90s, their ability to like sell books and do speaking tours was much diminished. They were and specifically, my mom was so busy raising three kids basically by herself mm. that she didn't have time to like pursue some career. And then my dad, he was just raked through the coals because not only were they celebrities, they were Christian celebrities. Okay, and so yeah. for their marriage to fall apart because of infidelity, mm. I mean, it was like basically the equivalent of what we saw a few years ago of like a Me Too cancellation of just like, you are out. This is what I think. I, I don't actually really know. But um, like to the degree where in the small town in Middle Tennessee where our family's farm was, my parents' divorce proceedings were like on the front page of the newspaper every day, like what they're saying and what like the update. It was like <sighs> local drama. And I was like four. I didn't know. Any, but I'm sure my mom was like losing hair in chunks. So anyway, I'm sure that had a big impact on me. I think they were so in love. And I think all growing up, my mom got remarried. My dad got remarried. But there was such a wound there. Specifically, mm -hmm. I could feel it in my mother that I think... I don't know. I can't speak for her psyche, but like, I very much believe that they really were like each other's soulmates. Mm. And it was just too hard. And like, their personalities couldn't make it work because my dad is a free spirit and my mom is like also free spirit, but very much like the Bible is not a suggestion, it's an instruction manual. It, it is a how to manual of humanity. So she like really dedicate your life to sticking to it. And my dad's a little bit more existentialist where he's like, I don't know, this feels good over here. So all that to say how that like seeped into my childhood brain is really interesting and something that I'll spend my whole life excavating because yeah. I think one thing it did is it actually, I've never really been like looking for my soulmate. Hmm. Like I'm obviously looking for a partner in life. I'm mm -hmm. looking for a good, healthy relationship and I've had some and, and seen them fizzle and fall away. And so being raised in the household I was in, kind of, I didn't have a Camelot dream. I was mm -hmm. just like, oh, like love is messy and being in the public eye is messy. And you know what? Families can be complex and go through hard things and still love each other, which mm -hmm. we did. Mm -hmm. And all of that layered on top of the fact that 
by third grade, I knew something was weird about my sexuality. Mm. And by seventh grade, I knew what it was called. And that was like an interesting layer in my formation because my mom was dealing with a broken career, a very rebellious old, my older sister. And then my little brother had serious health issues his whole childhood. And so as I was realizing that something about my sexuality is going to get me in trouble in the church community, what that did for me was, okay, I love my mom and she's already at her wits Mm. end. Mm -hmm. And so I cannot rock the boat. Yeah, I need to get straight A's. I need to be the perfect student. I need to like take, if I feel bad, if I have needs, if I feel scared, I can't put that on her. So I'm just going to keep it inside and be strong. Yeah. Which has turned me into like such a hyper independent person. And it's actually something that it's taken me all my thirties to unpack is my difficulty at asking for help and feeling like I'm allowed to have needs. Yeah. Ooh, we could camp out there for the rest of the show. (laughs) It's almost, you know, you introduced this term to me a couple minutes ago, emotional incest when a parent, inappropriately relies on their child to have their emotional needs met. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like this is inverse emotional incest where a child inappropriately keeps their needs from a parent because they're, they do feel like by at least keeping it in, that's like a way of me taking care of my parent who Mm. maybe seems unable to be able to take care of themselves in this moment. Exactly. That is, I mean, and that's something of course I did not see until a few years ago. I I never was, once I started looking back on it and really writing my new book, it was like in the process of writing that mm. book that so much of this came to light. I'm a true extrovert. So when I write, the origin of me becoming a writer was me journaling and writing on like a Tumblr blog so that I could just figure out what I think about things. Yeah. Specifically trying to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. And mm. I was just like trying to unpack that. And that's kind of what, led me into writing but um so anyway grew up in nashville loving family but complex like all families are and then i wanted to be my dream since the age of 10 after seeing jurassic park was to be steven spielberg so i wanted to make movies and everybody knew it it's all i did all through middle school and high school is tell everyone i'm going to be a film director and this is a miniature pluck up which is I show up in film school at USC in Los Angeles and I start taking film classes and I realize, oh, pluck. (laughs) Like, this is really hard. And Mm -hmm. a movie director is the boss of like 200 people. Yeah. And I am never supposed to be somebody's boss. (laughs) Like, I was like, oh, no, it's not just storytelling. It's not just creating a world it's like very intense the buck stops here you are the boss of all these people and you're dealing with some production companies hundred million dollars that they're expecting you to make 10 times more than that i was like i have told everyone i'm going to be steven spielberg and on day five i realize this is not for me i've just lied to everyone and my whole identity like i had talked such a big game when i graduated high school i had like teachers Ask for my autograph. They're like, you're going off to Hollywood. I want to get this now. Okay, this is so good because every high school has one or two of those kids. Mm -hmm. They leave and they know like 
I know what I'm going to do and I have my path, which my hypothesis is leads the other 98% of kids. They're the ones that think like I'm broken. I'm messed up because I don't, you know, like we hear the stories more of the people who did. They came out of the womb knowing what they wanted to do with their life. And then we definitely hear the stories about the people that knew it and then went on to achieve it. So you were that kid, but then super early on, you were like abort the mission. I fully knew it and I was fully wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. tell us about the mental, emotional journey. So you, you're having this recognition that you're like, oh, no. Oh, no, I made now, a mistake. Everyone at home is watching me like off in Hollywood. And within the first semester, I'm about to drop out of this film school and I'm going to be undeclared. Like for the first time in my life at yeah. 18, 19, I'm going to be a tumbleweed in the wind. Yeah. I've never felt that. And it was really, really scary. Mm. But I just knew I was like, oh, no, I hitched my wagon to the wrong star. Like, I, this is not what I'm supposed to do. But you did it. You like jumped off the course. I jumped off. I couldn't do it. I switched to the English department. I was going to study creative writing, having no intention of becoming a writer. But I did think it was almost like the whisper of a clue. I was like. Well, you know who doesn't have to be a boss but still gets to create these worlds is a screenwriter. Like mm-hmm. someone who writes the script of the movie, they get to imagine it, but then they don't have to like deal with the producer whatever. So, I thought maybe maybe I could be a screenwriter. So that was just like a plan B. Um, so when you made the decision and you like waved the white flag and you were like this isn't for me, did you spin it at all to yourself and to other people? Like, did you feel like you had to come out with like a, here's my narrative about why I'm not doing this? Or do do you feel like you were pretty honest with yourself and others that were watching you of just like, I made a mistake and now I'm going to be a little bit aimless? Or was there PR spin to it at the time? No, I did. I'm sure I PR spinned it. I'm, but, but the thing was, this was in right before Facebook. So this was in a world where you didn't have like a personal brand to make a statement. Like there was no PR release for your own life choices when you moved away from home. Like they're, everyone is their own PR person now and you got to make like a status update or an Instagram post being like, well, we called off the wedding, you know, whatever. It's like, that didn't used to happen. But then what did happen is when you went home for Christmas, everyone's like, so how's it going? And then you have to have that awkward conversation. For me, it was just, I think I spun it. I'm going to be a screenwriter because I don't think I can be a director. When I went to college, I really only kept up with a few friends and they understood it. I never like had to talk to those teachers who got my signature. Like, I think they're still waiting, but <laughs> <laughs> hopefully they like reading books. But yeah, it was it was very embarrassing and I was very confused. Hmm. And luckily, my parents, because this was a very unique blessing that I had in my life, my parents having walked across America and written books and did something totally unusual they were comfortable with me trying unusual things not knowing where i'm going they just understood that like a conventional path is not the path they took and so i felt very safe to be lost for a little while but i mean i didn't figure out by the end of college i still didn't know what i was doing i just knew i had read a bunch of books and that's why I went to law school, because I was like, I know I'm good at tests. I can take a standardized test like a mofo. So I'm going to take the LSAT and go to law school. And that way, at least 
I'll have some money making skill that mm-hmm. like I can like provide. This was also a time where my single mom was in financial hardship and mm-hmm. I was like experiencing that thing that a lot of people do where they're like I don't just look out for myself. I'm probably going to have to take care of my mom. Yeah. Like pretty soon. So yeah. I need to figure something out. I do want to say kudos to 19-year-old Jed Mm. for jumping off the bandwagon. That's like, I mean, I definitely talk to people and even on this show that it's like the ego and fear drive to when it's like, you know, deep in your heart, like this isn't right. But the pressure of not wanting to experience the unknown and not wanting to have to tell people you failed or you made the wrong decision. That's like, that is a powerful force that can keep a lot of people in a place that they know isn't in alignment with like who they are and what they want. So I'm just really proud of 19 year old Jed (laughs) for saying, and into your parents for creating at least a micro environment where it was like, there was a level of safety and understanding to say like, Hey, this is a journey and you're going to figure it out. And this isn't the end of the world. I will say that first of all, thank you. And I will say that there are a couple like, component pieces of my personality that of course I didn't choose to have that have been very helpful in my life. One of which being because of like the way that I am, I've always been called unique or quirky. Like all when I was little, they're like, there's nobody like you, Jed. Like people would say that. And sometimes they would be making fun of me, which I didn't always perceive. (laughs) And other times they meant it of just like, you're so unique. Yeah. And you're hard to forget and like things like this, which was nice because I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't like valedictorian. I w- and so like my identity wasn't tethered in an external mm. thing. It was my identity was tethered in like Jedness. Like, yeah. oh, like Jed is he's funny. He's like interesting to talk to. He can talk to the adults like that was something that really was foundational in becoming who I am. And so when I lost the label of, oh, he's going to be a movie director, there was a very sturdy sense of identity that was Mm. like, I am a quirky, interesting, weird person that I like myself. I'll figure it out. I felt a confidence there that helped me stay untethered to an external label, which I still have. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think this is going to resonate with a lot of people, myself included. And I wrote about this in my book of like how one of my big insecurities growing up is I didn't have my thing. Like I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't an athlete. I didn't like I remember being at my friend's house in fourth grade who was like an all-star pre-Olympic gymnast and like looking at her trophies and being so jealous that it was just like Mm -hmm. you have your thing. You're Lauren the gymnast and I'm Liz (laughs) the like. You know, there's, I like had nothing to like fill in and how that there was like such an insecurity around that. And I love how you just framed how not having your thing actually enables you to have a mix of things, which is so much more sturdy Mm. and robust in my company. We use this. This is going to get boring, but it's it's a process called traction, which is all for like how you're thinking about your business and strategy. And and one of the things that you do is you kind of talk about your unique proposition as a company, as an organization. And it's always a mix of two or three different things. None of those things on their own are that like novel. 
mm-hmm. the really interesting part comes in where it's like, but we're the one that does all three of these things. We put it together in a really interesting, unique way. And that's actually, that's our edge. That's our unique value proposition in the marketplace or whatever it is. And I kind of feel like you did that with your own self, that it was like <laughs> any one of those things isn't actually that sturdy or stable, but like, oh, Jed kind of uniquely puts these three maybe more mundane things. Not mundane, but like unremarkable. Yeah. But then when they go together, there's like a little bit of Jed magic that like happens that then when one of those external things gets severed or gets taken away, it's like not rocked by that. Yes. And I felt that. I remember being in like middle school or early high school and a lot of my best friends were athletes like baseball, soccer, football players. And I wasn't out of the closet, but I was like the funny gay one. And I remember so clearly my best friend in high school, his name is Whit Doolin. He tore his meniscus, ACL, hibiscus, I mean, <laughs> every word, everything snapped. And he was like devastated. Yeah. He was a like, I think it was during baseball season. He was like a star. And something could tear on his body. And like he had, as far as I could perceive, like an existential meltdown. Because all of a sudden, the star of fall semester of whatever grade was now just hobbling around school. Yeah. And like he, he was so downtrodden. And I remember thinking like, oh, I don't ever want my value to come from something that can tear like that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, that was a realization. It's not like I made some sort of like plan on a bulletin board of how to do that. But I remember noting that. Yeah. And maybe what it was was just I began my self-analysis, self-identifying with like the unique je ne sais quoi of me Mm -hmm. that people like and people respond to and that things that felt very durable. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that about being a writer. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I wanted to go into the arts because I was like, you can be an artist when you're 80. You cannot play baseball. And for some reason, I cared about that longevity. Yeah, It was just such an interesting process of finding the thing that gives me worth. And I still very much feel that. I do not. Of course, it'd be so cool to win some award, to win the Pulitzer, to win some, but I really, truly don't care. Hmm. I want to, yeah, but I don't know how to work hard for things like that. Hmm. Like play some kind of game. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. no, uh, I have no idea how you become a New York Times bestseller. I have no idea. Yeah. It just happens. I mean, some people have an idea and I'm sure they have great ideas. I do not have them, and I don't know how to give someone advice on that. Yeah, and it's okay. Yeah. It's like I'm doing the thing that I'm called to do. If I get that recognition, that's great. Yeah. And of course, it'd be awesome, but that isn't going to be the end goal. Yes. But all that to say, that led me to law school, and then law school, I was like getting this skill, and then that led me to being a nonprofit lawyer for my friend's company, Invisible Children which was amazing. It was like the truest season of like identity formation of my life. It was really group. when you were you living in San Diego. Oh, no, you weren't in Gulu. No, I didn't live in Gulu, but I went there three, four times a year. Okay. I felt like I did. It was like I was there constantly and I loved it. And what was it about that season of life that just felt like living truly and fully? It was a true sense of community because we were singular of purpose. We had very strong senses of purpose because it was 
end the war of Joseph Coney's LRA and awaken a generation into global empathy. Like yeah. if you live in Dallas and a kid is being murdered in Democratic Republic of Congo, that kid matters every bit as much as a kid in San Francisco. Like we should have. The, and so we were very we just had such a sense of urgency and this sense of purpose. And then it was like, we were making documentaries. We were making events, huge events with thousands of young people. We were lobbying Congress. We were meeting in, with the Obama administration. And so it was like 50 staff. It, this isn't the U S we had a much larger staff in Eastern Africa, but um, we had 50 staff and like a hundred volunteers every semester. And we were just, young and fired up and all working for this beautiful cause, but also putting our most sharp creative ideas to the service of this cause. It was just this magical mm. storm of community purpose and fun. And I loved it. And, and that was the interesting thing for me and the journey to finding your passion, finding your purpose is that like, I don't think, that there is like one label or one thing you become. I think that for that season of my life, that was my passion and that was my purpose, full stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I felt and I knew that I had something else in me that I wanted to try. Mm. I didn't know if I would succeed, but I knew I wanted to try before it got too late. And that was to try writing a book. Okay. And not just a book about a season of life, but like to be a writer. Okay. And so that's what led me to quit my job that I loved. Yeah, that's an interesting one to give up a love for a slightly maybe greater but unknown possible love. I know it sounds very like greedy and grass is greener, <laughs> but it was from just a sense of there is a finite amount of time you're on this planet mm. and that amount of time where you can have very little responsibility because you're young enough to not have all these other things in your life that you want and that give life a lot of meaning. But I was in that moment. I was in my late 20s and I was like, I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a family. And I have this dream. This is a really good moment to risk it. Spend two years taking a risk. And then I'm still like employable, I think. I can probably, if this crashes and burns, come back to doing this nonprofit work that I love. Totally. I wish that we could put that on a billboard for every person in their 20s. Mm -hmm. Because it's like the one-two punch of one, recognizing how unique that decade is. Mm -hmm. has become something I'm so, when I talk to people in their late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, of just like, there's so much that I did in that decade that I couldn't have and frankly probably wouldn't wanted to have right. done in the decade that I'm in right now that I just look back on and I want to kiss my 22-year-old self on the face yes. and just be like, thank you for doing that stupid, risky, could have turned into nothing thing for like not making the money, for doing the couch surfing, for like having no dignity, <laughs> no, yeah. you know, just like doing like... Because you couldn't have done that. Like, you can't do well, that and now. What you said is what, what you said, which I find so true, is it's not even that I couldn't. It's that I don't want to. Yeah. Yes, like, that's more accurate. There is, like, as you get older, people ask me all the time, do you want to go on another great adventure like your bike trip? And I'm like, no. That was in a season where I wanted to take myself out of my comfort zone and really do some deep digging in my identity. I feel like I've got a great 
handle and some key clues on my identity now. And now I am in a season of community investment. I want to belong somewhere. Mm -hmm. I want a barista to know my name. I want to go deep with my friends. Mm -hmm. I went wide with them in my 20s. Mm -hmm. I met everybody. Mm -hmm. I surveyed the planet Mm -hmm. and I found the ones I want to go deep with. Mm -hmm. And now I am investing my roots Mm -hmm. where I don't want to be lost in Mongolia right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe I will. Maybe that circles back around in my mid 40s or 50s. And I'm like, Let's do this. Yeah. But for this season, I don't want to. You know, when you said it sounds like it's like greedy or grass is greener, I don't think it does sound like that. It sounded like a decision that was actually born out of a lot of freedom of like, this is great and wonderful. And I actually am really content. I trust decisions that come out of contentment way more than I trust decisions that come out of discontentment. Mm. Because I think that when we make decisions out of like, I'm not happy right now, something's not right, I'm not feeling it, I think we so endanger whatever the next thing is because we're putting this expectation that that thing is going to fix us, that thing is going to make us feel happier, fulfilled, that when we're in a place where like, this is beautiful and this is good and I love it and I find value in it, but what if... Like, then I think the next thing that you go into, you're actually like entering into a relationship with that thing, that season, that vocation, that relationship, whatever it is, with so much less expectation because you're not like carrying the weight of what this thing lacked into you and needing it to be fixed by the next thing that I personally like trust myself a lot more when I'm making a decision in that place of like, this is good Mm. and I love this. Oh my God. Could it be better? That's so good. That just rewired something for me. I love it so much. And I think it's, we do that in our romantic relationships too. We carry the baggage of the last one and we're like, oh, this person is perfectly not like that other person's problems. <laughs> and then totally. they're just they're just actually bringing in their own. So tell us a little bit about, okay, so you did it. You took the leap. You quit the lawyering for a nonprofit and then you, you set out to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Did you tell people? I'm curious after your filmmaking, like bravado and naming and like, this is what I'm going to do. Were you like, mm, maybe we're going to keep this to myself a little bit more this time? Or are you like, nope, I'm declaring it and I'm going out there and I'm going to be a writer. That's such an interesting correlation because yes, I did. I think I declaring it because I know that I chicken out. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I got so excited about that. And so I like having community expectation. I think if I hadn't declared that I wanted to be a movie director, I wouldn't have moved to LA. LA was scary. Nashville is like a beautiful, simple city. You can park everywhere and leave your car there forever. You could park a boat (laughs) anywhere you want and no one will ever put a ticket on it. I got so many tickets when I moved to LA. But um, yes, that didn't pan out, but I'm so grateful that I moved to LA and had that whole big city experience and I met lifelong friends that changed my life in every direction. But this one was very much like, it wasn't like going to be a movie director for the next 40 years of my life. It was like, I am going to go on a specific bicycle trip for a year and a half that I I can, I know I can do something for a year and a half. I did mm-hmm. law school for three years mm-hmm. and I know it'll be uncomfortable, but I do love adventures. I love hiking. I love traveling. I love camping. So I think I'll like it. Mm-hmm. But I'm also in my late 20s and I don't know, like maybe I'll find some reason not to go. And I know that I want to try to write a book and I know I want to write it about an adventure. So I'm going to tell everybody three years early. I started telling everyone when I was 27 and 
it worked. By the time it was like a year out, everyone was asking me questions about it. They were like, are you practicing? Are you exercising? And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> but I knew I was going and I knew I wasn't going to check it out. And I had already told my job I was going to quit. So Okay, I am so in love with this because I'm a huge believer in making promises and declarations for the mm. same reason, because I'll chicken out if I don't. And I'll tell a different story once it gets hard, and then it's way easier to just change the narrative that you kept in your head than it is to have to you know, answer to other people. But mm. what I think is so great about your story is that you did that once, and you dealt with the repercussions of, let's call it a failed goal, a failed like yeah. proclamation, but yet you still hold the belief that it was good that you did it. Because I think so yeah. many people, they declare their goal or their dream for the first time, and when they fail for the first time, they're like, ooh, that sucked. It would have been way easier had I not declared it. Next time, I'm going to keep that to myself. Next yeah. time, and then I, I truly believe that it's like, unless you're a really, really special, very self-determined like guru – if you're not saying it out loud and you're not declaring it, the energy, the accountability, it's just so much more difficult for those things to manifest. And so I love that your your first go with it was like crash and burn kind of, <laughs> but that you can still look at it and say, but had I not made the declaration, yeah, I didn't end up going on to be a you know famous director, but like all of this stuff wouldn't have happened either. And to be able to dig for that, like, and that was all a result of making a promise you weren't totally sure how you were going to keep. That is so true. A declaration, what a declaration does is it guarantees at least a first step. And most yeah. people never take a step. Yep. Yep. Because they're so afraid. And I remember that was one of the main reasons I made the declaration to be a director in this and that, because I observed my own self in high school. I was so afraid of trying hard to get an A mm -hmm. and getting a B yeah. than just not doing shit and getting Bs. Because totally. then I could always believe, well, if I did try, I could have got an A, mm -hmm. but I don't try. So mm -hmm. so I was able to like live this like internal fantasy of being a, a unrecognized genius. And <laughs> <laughs> But I, I was just like, no, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move across the country. I think it's whenever I'm going to do a big change, I try to like, build a groundswell of community support through declaration. Yeah. I love it. I love that so much. That's so good. So, okay. So you did the thing. You went on this amazing adventure. You wrote this beautiful book. And what's it called? Like Streams to the Ocean. Okay. Why should everybody read this book? Well, this book, it's my favorite book. I've only written two, but it's the, <laughs> it's the book that's the most me. Like it is truly me. Hmm. And what it is is my whole life, I think when you are a gay boy being raised in Christianity and you realize that your entire faith structure and community, something innate that you are is a problem, hmm. it creates like, at least in me, it created an internal therapist philosopher of like, okay, the world is not made for me. Something is off. I hmm. need to study what all of this means. I need hmm. to understand the human experience all the way so that I can figure out how to exist on this planet. Hmm. And so it built this insatiable curiosity for the human experience, for emotions, for what does family mean? What does love mean? Like if my love is evil, what is love? Yeah. And it, what does God mean? What does career mean? 
And so I found myself always writing on these subjects and in talks with my publisher, I was like, I would love to, because there's about eight subjects that I always seem to think about and they seem to be foundational in like a thriving human mind. And I'd like to do an essay collection on these eight subjects. Hmm. And so that's what it is. It's called like streams to the ocean and it's writings and essays on the ego, your sense of self, family, friendship, home, love, work, death, and the soul. Hmm. And so it's a zillion thoughts on all of those subjects. And what I love about it is whatever you're going through, whatever you're thinking about, you can just kind of like go, whether it's what's my life's purpose, what's my career, or what do I think about my grandmother dying or death in general, or you can just kind of like go to that section and like have Hmm. a conversation with me and I just want to be, my favorite thing in the world is sitting around a fire, having a deep conversation until 3 a.m. about things that matter. And I have been told so many times, specifically on the internet by people who read my work and they're like, I don't have anyone in my life to talk about this stuff with. Mm. Like reading your words is that for me. And so I wanted to basically give them a book to sit with them for hours and hours and hours and have those conversations. Mm, I love that. I can't wait to read it. Jed, thank you so much. I genuinely could continue this conversation for so long. My brain is firing in so many beautiful (laughs) new ways and directions. And I feel like my greatest desire in life right now is that I could just shut everything else down and go hang out with you around a campfire. Mm, and keep having these conversations you're so generous Uh, and you're curious it really is your curiosity and your empathy and your sense of like wonder and freedom is such a gift mm. so thank you for sharing it with us here today well it is my true honor and i've you make my brain fire in every good direction and we definitely have to do this again and also in person full of every vaccine Yes. Oh, yes. Good point. Vaccine and whiskey <laughs> is going to make for the best campfire oh hangout God. ever. I should probably wait until after I birth this third child before I uh, imbibe mm-hmm. in the whiskey. Yes. So let's let's put it like next summer. We'll do it. Great. And if you guys are like, I want to hang out with Jed around a campfire and drink whiskey while I'm vaccinated. <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't seem like for whatever reason that's going to happen for you next summer. The next best option, it sounds like, is to buy Jed's book. And that is launching now. It's already out, most likely. And it's going to be like at any moment. It's Jed on demand. That was actually the second (laughs) runner up for the title of the book. Um, Where in a hammock or around a campfire, you can pop it open and have these conversations with yourself and with Jed. And then hopefully with others as that spurs you on in your journey towards greater empathy and curiosity and wonder. So thank you, Jed. I love you. I know that's a little soon to say. No, it's it's not too soon. It's not too soon. I'm so glad you said it first. I love you too. (laughs) We will talk again probably tomorrow.
Well, I hope you all liked today's episode and conversation as much as I did. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram at lizbohannon is where I hang out or at sincerelyhuman is where my producers are. All right, you guys, that's all. We'll catch you in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.